everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen. We are thrilled to join you each and every Friday, taking you into the weekend, talking about all the latest news in the world of sports. What a year it has been for us on the Heart of Sports. We're going to do a little recap show with a couple of our favorite interviews coming up. We'll have interviews first with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. How can we not replay that one for you? Then we'll recap our interview with Julie Ertz, and then finally we'll have our interview with the armless archer Matt Stutzman. What a conversation we had with each of them, and we're thrilled to bring them back with you. What a week in Philadelphia sports, too. We head into the final weekend of the NFL season. The Eagles have the division on the line, um, have the chance to beat the Giants and advance, have a home game in the playoffs after their big win over Dallas last week. We'll have plenty to say with that when we're back just after the new year. Sixers with a huge win on Christmas Day, beating the Milwaukee Bucks, held Giannis to much struggles. Uh, good game for Embiid and Simmons, everybody else on the team. Plenty to talk about that in the new year. The Phillies have their roster that they're trying to reshape. We'll see where they stand right now. Still probably need some more pitching help, but to go into the season next year with a coach and uh, bench coaches that should be able to help the players that are there. A little bit of excitement there. And under the radar, the Flyers right now are really having a fun start to their season. Hoping more people start to come out to the game because it's a little different this year down there. And this team can, can do a couple things. And they're, they're in most games. And it's a good time to watch this team. We had a lot of fun covering the Union this season. We'll look to see what they bring back next year after their first home playoff game. Uh, we were there for that. That and much more. Uh, the Heart of Sports had a great time joining you for everything. Why don't we go to our interview with Kareem. When we'll come back, we'll close it all out and welcome the new year. We're pleased to be joined by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history and right now is selling all of his sports memorabilia from his 20-year le- career. You can bid on these amazing items at www.kareemabdul-jabbar.com slash auction, and we'll be putting that on our website. Kareem, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So... As somebody that's a collector of different things myself, uh, my wife would prefer that I not collect all of these things. (laughs) I I was interested, we read about what you're doing, and I was really interested in what led you to auction off your own memorabilia, which includes some of the most amazing moments in NBA history. Well, I I just felt that, uh, you know, I'd had it for for so long, and um, it's uh, it's something... you got to take care of it and, you know, make sure that it's insured and all these things. And, uh, you know, I, I have a foundation where I'm doing a great job uh, explaining STEM education to uh, young kids. In the fourth and fifth grade, we, we send kids to a STEM camp in the Angeles National Forest, and we work with the Los Angeles Unified School District. And uh, we're doing a great job getting kids to understand that STEM education is really the foundation for good jobs in the 21st century. And uh, the, uh, we're sending a couple thousand kids each uh, year, and we have a f- uh, five- or six-year waiting list. It's, it's, the program's really successful, and I'd like to see it continue. So by funding it with uh, some of the proceeds, uh, from this auction, I'll be able to keep that up and leave that as a legacy, you know, giving kids a shot that can't be blocked. 
you know, that, that, that educational foundation that enables them to, to do what they want to do with their lives. I, I think that is a great legacy for me, and uh, having this auction will enable me to uh, see that that uh, has some legs. How did you get involved with that? Because we talk a lot about the impact that athletes can have, and, I mean, you're obviously an example of that with what you're doing. So how did you get involved with that organization in terms of you started it and that was going to be your mission? And then what is it like for you to realize the impact that you're having on the future that these kids will, will now be able to realize? Well, I, I've always been an, an advocate for literacy and uh, good educational opportunities for, for kids. That, that's that been something I, I've harped on my whole life. And uh, I just... Uh, was influenced by by uh, a number of people I I knew that were in education, and they said that uh, getting to kids before peer pressure and popular culture have a chance to influence them uh, is is the best way to ensure that they understand how to make the best use of their educational opportunities. Too many of our our kids, uh, you know, they they want to be Beyonce or they want to be LeBron, or you know, they they want to be Sting, you know. Uh, they, they think that uh, they have to have some type of really unique talent in order to succeed, when basically all they have to do is, you know, pay attention in chemistry class, pay attention in math class, and uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised at where you will end up being an engineer at. You know, that this is uh, a common occurrence in, in our country. You're, so, uh, you're making the I dad that's that, sitting across the table from me smile. I'm guessing that he's going <laughs> to have his son listen to this after the show, just so you know. Oh, well, good, you know, because <laughs> that, that's the message, basically. And uh, by taking the kids, uh, you know, away from home and focusing them on that, uh, we, we, we've had some, some really interesting and, and rewarding successes. Well, you've also been... In addition, in in addition to promoting this cause, you yourself have been a prolific writer on very important subjects. I read your book, Writings on a Wall: Giant Steps, Becoming Kareem. There's there's so many. So, how did how did you develop your passion for literacy and, and this this particular subject? I, I think I got to blame my dad. My dad was an avid reader. Um, he bought. He just was always had books and magazines and. He wouldn't answer any of my questions. <laughs> he said, you want to know about it? you got to put your nose in this book or that book or the other. And I just realized that if I was going to answer any, get any question answered, I'd better become a researcher, and I got hooked that way. I became an avid reader, just like my dad. And uh, when I was in grade school, the nuns would, would send me uh, on uh, essay contests. You know, I, I never won any. But, you, know. <laughs> you, you won plenty. I, I, you won plenty after that. Though. So, so there are no yeah. there are no essay uh, award winning trophies that Being are part of the, mem- the part no, of the memorabilia. No. But I got the bug then, you know, and it, it, it stuck with me. Well, that <laughs> Jeff, go ahead. You know, we sometimes hear people push back when athletes take a position on societal issues. Uh, you have been one of the people that I that I personally look up to when when i see how people we've talked to doug glanville if you know doug glanville he's he's dealt with a lot of these issues and he's actually teaching at yale this semester on on uh, social justice taught at penn last year and we had him on the show i read a quote from you democracy is not a solo concert it's a choir of voices blending to create a beautiful sound can you explain what you meant by that and how important you think it is for not not just athletes, anybody in the public eye to use that 
for for good and not remain silenced? Every any democracy that works listens to everybody. You got to listen to everybody because everybody is are the people that make it work. Everybody pays taxes. Everybody tries to obey the law and respect the rights and privileges of their fellow citizens. That's how it should be. So we've got to understand that and, and make that possible for everybody to participate. That, uh, that overall participation of, of everybody, uh, those are our fellow citizens. Those are the people we've got to look out for. And uh, once we get that, that concept down, I, I think uh, our, our, our country you know, will, will move forward even in a more rapid way than it has because uh, we're, we're starting to get the concept. It, being American has nothing to do with uh, what you look like, uh, you know, where you came from, your, your, your race or your religion. It has to do with if you're loyal to, to this country and what it's about. And uh, I, I think we're finding that out now and, and accepting the uh, American status of people of, uh, of many different uh, ethnicities and, and, and origins. I, I think that's a wonderful thing. I think that's why America is number one. Along those lines, you know, we, we know that we sort of stand on the shoulders of the people who came before us. And you're a leader with the National Basketball Retired Players Association movement to try and get retired players more involved in community work. Can you talk to us about how you've embraced that and your involvement and how the NBA has worked with that as well to, to help these athletes who have done so much along the way? Well, I've tried to. Uh, the, the NBA has had me come to rookie orientation a, a couple of times. So that uh, some of the young men just coming into the league can can ask us questions and uh, get a better idea of uh, you know what they're dealing with, and I, I think that uh, that concept really goes a long way. I, I remember while I was still at UCLA, there were NBA players that I knew. Uh, Willie Knowles comes to mind. Archie Clark. He he played there for the 76ers. Um, they they kind of mentored me and, and helped me understand what I was dealing with and and how to cope and how to prepare and it it really helped me and uh, I think that 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 brotherhood is is pretty strong uh, among basketball players. I've come up doing a lot in the area of digital media, working with with different clients, and I saw you say in an interview that that you wouldn't have been misunderstood as misunderstood as you were because you could have explained yourself if you played in the social media era. I was fascinated by that answer. Can you talk more about that and, and also you know, how you think the athletes that currently play use that outlet and that platform that they have? Are they better understood? I think they are. I think they have an opportunity to let people know how they really feel without having to have it be interpreted and uh, you know, retold by a reporter. I think you get the, you know you get it from the horse's mouth as they say, and I think that that probably would have would have helped me because you know a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the sports writers when I first started playing they were very conservative and you know they thought that you know black athletes should uh, know their place and keep quiet um, just like what Laura Ingram said about uh, LeBron James that's absurd you know the the fact that uh, you know, Le- LeBron James is an athlete does not mean that he has uh, no ideas about what his life has been like living in America. He, he's very well aware of, of what that is, and he, he's articulate enough to, to, to share it with people effectively. So, you know, just because you're an athlete does not mean that you don't have the right to, to speak your mind about 
what your life has been about. Does it surprise you that today's athletes are getting some of that same pushback? You you mentioned the parallel between yourself and LeBron with that. D- did you think that we would be past that at this point, or is that part of why you continue to speak out to try to make sure that we keep moving forward? I, I think we have to keep moving forward. Uh, I think uh, people see uh, an athlete that has uh, had an opportunity to make a lot of money, and maybe there's some resentment or envy there. And, uh, you know, they people take an attitude that, uh, well, you know, you've gotten ahead, so, you know, just be quiet about certain things. And uh, that that's the, that's not the way it works. You know, you, you have to speak about injustice. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, how fortunate you've been in, in the opportunities that you have. Uh, a lot of people have, have taken some really hard licks getting to where they've gotten and uh, have uh, paid a, a, a severe price for their success. So, you know, you gotta got to listen to people. Do, do, you, do you think that, that today's athlete, I know I'm making a generalization, but today's athlete understands what the ground that you've paved and the people of your generation have paved for the NBA and the opportunities they have, not just financially, but, but to better their community? Uh, do you think they're taking advantage of that opportunity and appreciating it as much as they should? Well, they're certainly taking advantage of it. A, a lot of them don't appreciate exactly how far we've come. Uh, talk to some of these guys uh, in the league now, they, they don't understand that uh, the NBA was once segregated. And then after that, there were quotas for how many black players you could have on a team. I mean, it was <laughs> it, that that was the that was the NBA for a number of years. So uh, you know, we've come a long way, and um, you know, God bless them. They they <laughs> they have a great opportunity now to to be wealthy and uh, do great things for their for their families and themselves and their communities. We. We talk a lot uh, um, on our show. This is we do a show for the Sixers for their G League team, and um, you know we, we you talk a lot about the opportunities that athletes have. What do you think about the the growth of avenues for for student athletes and athletes to pursue their careers? The G League or the changing of college rules or international ball? Do you think that's all moving in a good direction to help the players in the long run be better and the league be better? Yeah, I think it is. I I, I think uh, the league should encourage guys to stay in school. You know, they could have a situation like they have in professional baseball where you can sign a contract but finish college and then go into the pros or go into the G League. I think uh, too many immature guys come into the league and, you know, it takes them a while before they're they're productive. And um, that time would be much better spent with them getting a, an education and developing some skills and a work ethic that will help them when they finally do get into the NBA. Do, do you do you hear or, or do you go speak to um, NBA players about going back to school or about continuing their education? Um, or do you hear that other people are doing the same thing? Because when I see this, yes, you if you're a first or second round pick, you're getting a guaranteed amount of money. But for a large number of people that are coming out, they they're not people don't understand that they're not making this kind of money, and that their career is a finite period of time, and that that they should have something to fall back on. And as you've done, have a career after your career. It's so um, 
it's discouraging to me to to see uh, athletes put all their all their effort into one area, and you know if they don't make it in the NBA, their lives are messed up. Uh, you know, we we got to do something about that. I, I think that that should be something that uh, everybody should cooperate, you know, because there's been a whole lot of wasted lives for the, for that very reason that you just mentioned. You know, kids putting all their eggs in the basket, oh, I'm going to make it in, in, into the NBA. And uh, it's a, it can be a rude awakening. You know, a kid that makes it into the NBA and says, ah, it's all over now, I've arrived. And really the, the tough part of their life is just beginning. And they don't they don't get that, and it's it's a uh, it's a shocking and uh, very tough adjustment that they have to make. I'd be remiss if I didn't take the chance to ask you. I grew up watching your skyhook. Um, I was not tall, so I would get blocked a lot. But the skyhook, I could get up because nobody could block that. Um, not that I was good at anything. There's there's actually a player at the University of Michigan, Xavier Simpson, who is under six feet tall, who uses the skyhook. Yeah, because short yeah. people get blocked. I understand that. Um, but it doesn't seem like today's players are really adding that to their arsenal. Have people approached you about that shot? And why don't you think that players are taking advantage of what you found such success with? I think um, they it, it's. It's it's very tough for me. You know, I, I think one one issue there is that players don't get taught that when they, when when they're learning the game. Everybody wants to face the basket and shoot three pointers, and uh, getting your back to the basket and getting close to the basket, where you have a high percentage, uh, a higher percentage uh, opportunity to score, uh, makes a lot of sense. But that that's. Uh, that's a hard thing to explain to some people. You know, the three-point, that extra point for the three-pointer is just uh, very uh, intoxicating. And, you know, the, the kids, they, that, that's what they want to do. You think, I, um, you think that it may, I, maybe if, uh, if, if we made a sky hook count for three points, maybe more people would learn it? Oh, yeah. Probably. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, made, I made thousands of three-point plays, but, you know, the old, what they call the old-school three-point play, I, I got fouled uh, shooting that shot. Yeah, you earned it. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Made, made it that way, but um, it's getting high-percentage shots now is, uh, is, is pretty easy. The uh, kid that just went from the Lakers to the Clippers, uh, Ivica, he's really doing well. He's shooting close to 70% in the, in the paint. Whew. My goodness. You know, and uh, he's just using that shot. I, I was able to, to get Andrew Bynum uh, to score and, you know, be a, a, an effective player for, for the Lakers for a while. But uh, he, he really wasn't into it and didn't, uh, you know, work on it enough. And Yeah, we saw that here, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't – he wasn't dedicated. He didn't like the game enough, you know. he For him it was just a job so he could – Andrew liked to take cars apart. You know? <laughs> he also liked the bowl, unfortunately. <laughs> well, uh, you guys know a little bit more about that than I do. Uh, uh, Kareem, um, we had the uh, the fortune to last week retire the number of Moses Malone. Um, you, some of my fondest memories are, are seeing the two of you battle. Uh, what was it like to to play with Moses and to know Moses? Well, you know, Moses was a, a great uh, player, especially in the paint, you know, uh, as a rebounder, getting offensive rebounds for his team, you know, and, and, and clearing the, the defensive boards. I just saw his son uh, about a year or so ago, 
I did a his son works in the in the movie business and I, I ran into him and uh, you know I, it it really bothered me to to lose him so early I mean he he was younger than I was and it just it blew my mind that that he passed away like that I was so sorry to to uh, to hear that but he he uh, he he brought a whole lot of energy and uh, relentless effort uh, into the paint and uh, he 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 was uh, he was a formidable uh, opponent. We obviously now have a, a pretty dominant center here in Philadelphia in Joel Embiid. What do you think of Joel and his game? Well, I, I like the way that uh, they're playing the game now, trying to stretch the court. Joel can can shoot the J from uh, from three point line and you know you know fifteen eighteen footers, and he goes inside and and, and does the job inside. So uh, you know the way the game is being played now, uh, Joel has like got all the uh, requisite skills and. Uh, He's earning his money every night on the court. I, I think uh, the 76ers are, should be very happy that they have him on the team, and I hope they uh, they keep him and, and, and use him well. We, we talk a lot, too, about um, the impact that coaches have on the lives of, of their players. Jeff uh, likes to talk fondly about coaching his son. We've interviewed lots of coaches. You've obviously written about Coach Wooden and others. Can you talk about the impact that he and other coaches had on your life, sort of mentoring you to be the man that you are? I think that uh, coaches are essential in, in developing talent. It's, it's very rare that you have somebody. The only guy I know that just went to a gym, saw basketball, learned everything he had to learn by watching and came and tore up the league is uh, Antente Compo. I mean, that, his story is amazing to me. You know, his, his dad suggested that he, you know, Go to a gym there in Athens and learn <laughs> basketball because hey, look, you're six foot eight, <laughs> and, <laughs> and he did it, you know, on his own. That that's amazing. But you know, for me, my my uh, my grade school coach found somebody that showed me the George Mikan drill. He said, you know, Cream does he can hardly stand up straight. You know, he needs to learn something that has that's going to help him with the game. So a guy named George Hadick, uh, I was in the fifth grade. George Hadick showed me. The George Mikan drill, and that's all I had. I, I worked on that for the next four years, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And by the time I was in the eighth grade, I could uh, shoot that on the college kids that I played against in the park or, or on on the weekends, and, and they couldn't block that shot. And I knew that I had something that uh, you know that I could use on the basketball court. Well, that, that's how it was for me. You know, I just took that drill and took it as far as I could go with it. Well, Kareem, we really we really appreciate you spending some time with us. Before we let you go, though, there are a lot of <clears throat> excuse me a lot of items on your your auction, uh, all for a good cause, and people should check it out. But is there part of you that I know they're they're just things, and, and the what you're doing is is amazing because it's it's your legacy will go on much longer than than those things, but. You know the things that I collect aren't necessarily memorabilia of athletes or things. They're they're things that even like shot glasses from places that I travel to, and even though it drives my wife nuts that I have all this stuff, they they have they elicit a memory for me. Is it is it hard for you to to sell some of those things because they are your memories? They're they're your they tell the story of your life. Well, I I haven't sold. Totally everything. <laughs> uh, I've got a few items here that uh, that are special to me, you know, from UCLA and my professional career, and that's all I need, you know. 
Um, I, I have a, a piece of the floorboard from the old Boston Garden, the uh, the parquet floor, and Red Arback gave that to me. Wow! And I, I'd known I'd known Red since I was 14 years old, and uh, we were always friends. Even though the Lakers and, and the Celtics had that rivalry, you know, Red and I were friends, uh, and uh, that that's special to me. And you know, I got one or two other things, and, and that's all I need. You know, I, I lived it. The memories are there in my heart and in my mind. I, you know, it'll, it'll be okay to to let these things go. I, I, I'll be okay with it. Well, Kareem, thank you for joining us. And everybody, please try to go to www.kareemabduljabbar.com/auction and also the Skyhook Foundation. And Kareem, uh, thank you for everything that you do for your community. And thanks for your time. We appreciate it so much. Oh, thanks for having me, and good luck, and uh, we'll see what the 76ers can do. Uh, it's getting to be that time now, so we, good luck. We look forward to it. Thank <laughs> you so much. You have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, Women's World Cup champion, are you there on the line? I'm here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. How uh, how special is it to again hear those words, Women's World Cup champion? Um, it doesn't get old. I can tell you that. What, what was what was the experience like over there? This Wouldn't it be time? funny if she said it did? Yeah, right. <laughs> It'd be great if she like stop saying it. It's not nothing. Yeah. What was it like over there though? I mean, we saw the the France game. The tickets were going for like eleven thousand dollars. Did you guys know how crazy people were going outside of? Where you were playing, or were you kind of in your own bubble, in your own world there? Um, I mean, you kind of create a bubble for the most part. I mean, you kind of have to because it's such a crazy tournament during the time. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was insane. I think I went in going to, like, you know, we're in Europe. I was like, we might not have a home crowd like we did in 2015 because Canada's a lot easier to get to. Um, but I was actually absolutely shocked and amazed at how many fans we had um, in every single game. Obviously, the France game was um, more so 50-50, um, and that was crazy insane and kind of to hear that. But it was really cool. I mean, we, we felt the, um, the support and kind of like the craziness that was going on over there, and we knew that was going to be a huge game. Even, even though you grew up outside of Philadelphia, you have become a Philadelphian, and Philadelphia seemed to have embraced you. Did you know what was going on back here in Philadelphia? I mean, I, I personally went to uh, one of the bars that show soccer games, uh, and it was packed for every one of the Women's World Cup games. Um, that's awesome. Um, well, our, Zach's mom and his brother, they were all out there as well. So they went to a bunch of bars as well and was telling me. So I had, I had an insight as well because they, they joined in the festivities out there too. So you get out there, you, you get through the, the tournament, you, you win, you, you hoist the trophy again. What's the celebration been like since? What, what is that like for you afterwards? You've tried so hard, you've gotten um, everything ready, and, and now it just ends. Yeah, you know, it's so I mean, it was such an amazing experience. We've got to come back. We get a t- ticker tape parade in, um, in New York, um, and then flew to L.A., and then we had the Espies, and so it was, it was just like a crazy whirlwind for sure, but it, um, it kind of doesn't take um, too long for um, for you kind of to want more. And so I think I think someone told us that we're 26 days uh, from the from that final. So uh, yeah, I mean now it's kind of crazy because then you're kind of already on to the Olympics. That's only about a, I think less than a year away now. So uh, it's kind of crazy how it switches already. What's the most fun thing that you had an opportunity to do as a result of winning the World Cup that you never thought that you would be able to do? Um, 
Oh, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> He's good at um, that. I know. I'm trying to think, but I've never done that. Um, we were able to have dinner on a yacht, which was really cool. I've never done that. That was cool. That's kind of fun. Um, yeah. The, the growth, I, I had talked, uh, we had, oh, I did want to ask, we had JP Della Camera on a few weeks ago. Do you ever listen back to the calls of your goals when you score? Do you ever, do you ever do that? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I just, I, I love the, the way that some of the calls were and, and how it went. I just never knew whether players actually go back and, and look at that. You know, we're a highlight society. I didn't know whether that gets back to you. Now you're, you're back and, you know, you guys are back to your, your teams with the, the women's soccer league. Um, you know, I follow the, the team in Jersey, of course, and they're actually talking about moving the, the game with Carly Lloyd's team, the uh, the Sky Blue, and, and Megan Rapinoe's team up to Red Bull Stadium because they may not be able to hold it with capacity at your sack field there. Uh, any thoughts on how the excitement from the World Cup has transferred over to the Women's League? Yeah, it was tremendous. I mean, I'm in, I got dropped in Chicago, still in Chicago, and um, it was absolutely amazing it was um it was i'm trying to think uh we had 17,000 plus um fans there it was an electric um crowd it was amazing i mean we had amazing attendance across the entire nwsl so just the support and the continued support has been huge um obviously the nwsl is, is so awesome to have to be able to you know have young girls dream about playing professionally in their country is, is huge and so it's been great um especially from coming back and the continued support you're also not only playing back on the red stars but you're also going to be going on this tour the victory tour um which is going to be here i believe on august 29th what's it what's it like to to know that you're going on this victory tour and you're playing in places like lincoln financial field in front of a bunch um, of your home people. Yeah, it's so cool to be able to come back, kind of bring the trophy back and um, celebrate all the girls just for um, all the hard work. And, I mean, the tournament's such a long, and it, it, we had such difficult games. Like, it was just such a really special time. And to be able to come back and really celebrate that and obviously celebrate Jill as this would be, like, her last few games. So it's just, like, a collective, obviously, huge experience. And I think for me, even have the possibility to – play at the link where I'm a fan and a spectator there cheering on my husband. When I, when we found out we were, <laughs> we were ecstatic because I obviously, um, I love playing where the Philadelphia union play. Um, it's a great area, a great stadium as well, but, um, always, you know, in the back of my head kind of dreamed about being able to be on the field and see what it was like at the link. So, um, it's going to be a really special moment for my family. Are you going to be able to get Zach tickets? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you take the cut, but uh, we'll see. see. I, I think they put the Jets that night. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if he knows anybody. They've actually—I don't know if you know—they've sold, I think, thirty-six thousand tickets to that game already. Maybe you can practice the the end zone celebration after you score a goal like Zach does. Show him up a little oh, bit. Oh, could you imagine? Oh, if I score during that game, it'll be more than just a celebration. It, it, <laughs> it will. Uh, it will certainly be fun, and I'm sure plenty of people will show it to him, whether he's there or not. Uh, we did want to ask you, uh, we, we always talk about the, the platforms that athletes have and how we use them. The women's soccer team in particular, um, sort of trailblazers from going back to the previous teams and the continued growth of women's sports. What's it like for you to be a role model for women and young girls and, and people who are fans at that level? It's been truly an honor. And I think kind of each year you kind of learn about your, your platform and how to grow. And I think the most rewarding thing is talking to young girls about, you know, wanting to play in the NWSL or wanting to take our shoes. And that's a really rewarding part of the sport. Um, and it just kind of shows you the growth. I think even just watching how many girls um, are playing soccer um, in our country has grown as well. And that's really exciting. And 
um, across the entire world. I mean, I've, we've just seen growth everywhere. I mean, the most amazing thing about France was just some stats that we kept seeing in each and every country, um, Brazil, England, France. I mean, just the amount of people tuning in to watch um, and support and fans showing up is huge. The amount of sponsorships that want to be a part of it as well. This is so amazing to be able to think that you can be a part of something that you can really help kind of change and, and leave it better than where you where you kind of started. Um, obviously, soccer has been giving me so many amazing opportunities, and I and I hope it um, has the possibility to give um, females um, all over the world the same that same opportunity. What's What's it like to see kids wearing uh, a U.S. jersey with your name on the back of it? Does that ever get it old when you see that? Old. No, it never does. I think I'm still in like shock. Um, want to see that. Um, you know, when I first started, they didn't sell jerseys with our name and number on there, and now they do. And even just that growth is so cool to be in a store and see it. And just, you know, you can choose any any player on the team to wear, and and for someone to choose mine, it's it's really um, it's really special. And it, it, that feeling never goes away. I love seeing it. I get the same feeling when I go into the stadium and see people wearing '86 jerseys and. Um, yeah, it's every time I'm sitting in the stands, um, or if I'm on the field and I look up in the stands and see mine, it's, it's truly an honor and, um, a really cool moment to have. You mentioned Zach Stubber. How's he handling the fact you have bragging rights on titles now? (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, I think maybe because I'm in the lead apparently, uh, is what everyone's saying that I just don't realize it. Um, but I mean, I'm sure it's more motivated as well. I mean, Zach's always motivated wanting to have, um, you know, to do well and have the team do well. So I bet uh, you, I don't know. Maybe, maybe secretly it does, but he didn't really tell me. I bet you're leading in Jersey sales too. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to go check the numbers after we get That's off the right. call. Although I do have to say, and we've talked about this on air is, is that it is very hard for guys to get a women's players jersey jeff is lobbying for you to that's have right them more available. and i have suggested this because because i th- i know that there are, are boys out there that w- will also be wearing those jerseys absolutely absolutely i did want to yeah, ask that's awesome. I, I think did... this was the first year they sold men, they sold men's jerseys uh fanatics actually uh started selling them and and a lot of people went crazy out of excitement so that was really cool too to see that even just people just voice that like that's really cool that sport in general is awesome I don't know if you guys heard in the stadium when you were playing in the, the championship game, uh, one of the big issues for you has been the fight for equal pay. Could you hear the fans in the stadium chanting for it? And, and what's that been like for you to have that platform and, and fight for equality on that level for yourself? Yeah, that was, it kind of came out of nowhere. Like obviously from celebrating and kind of hearing that and that kind of just goes on the support um, both on and off the field that we've had, but we kind of recognize the power that we have um, in this moment and, Obviously, in the world, um, been asked for a lot of kind of change to grow and um, kind of put a spotlight on the issue for women in general. And um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 ongoing. Obviously, it's a continued thing, but um, that's kind of what we're trying to do is grow grow the grow it and on and off the field. In in addition to to being a role model in that way, uh, you also have the Earths Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about how that got started and and, and where that passion came from? Yeah. Oh, it's been, thank you for asking. That's amazing. Um, yeah, you know, just obviously kind of through our career, we've always wanted to try and figure out how we can give back to the communities that have given us so much. And, um, a bunch of the Eagles actually went down. I was in camp, so I couldn't go, but, uh, Carson Wentz took a bunch of, a bunch of the guys down to Haiti and, 
um, that kind of jumpstarted everything. Zach, you know, just felt was so moved by the people and was like, we need to, we need to do more in our communities as well. We have the platform. Let's, let's give back. And obviously kids have a near and dear to our hearts. So our foundation really gives, um, you know, raises money to give opportunities, sports and education opportunities to kids in our area. And so um, obviously the Bay Area, what's uh, where he grew up and went to school. That's where I went to school. And of course, Philly, like Philly's opened up, like given their, you know, opened up with wide arms to us and to give back. And we have some really exciting news um, this coming week to hopefully make a huge impact in that community as well. Well, we look forward to covering it. We always welcome you back. Or if there's any way we can help publicizing the efforts with the foundation. Also, we'll keep raising efforts about what you all doing with the women's soccer team. And we expect we expect a great celebration when you score that goal at the link on August 29th. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be there watching. Uh, we really appreciate okay, the time. We appreciate the time so much, and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Have a Go great one. Sports lets people live their dreams, overcome obstacles, and achieve goals. But what's your unimaginable? Do you want to be a part of something bigger than yourself? To push your limits? The A Fatty clothing brand believes we're all capable of going far beyond we previously imagined. To overcome your obstacles and achieve your goals. Life gives you the chance to push harder, to dream bigger, and to do whatever it takes to conquer the unimaginable. And to do it with A Fatty on you. The original street leisure clothing brand. Taking you into the weekend with the latest news in the world of sports. With the biggest names on and off the field, it's the Heart of Sports each and every Friday at 4 p.m. on 610 ESPN. With former players, reporters, and commentators like Adam Schefter, John Runyon, Keith Jones, Trey Thomas, and Doug Glanville, Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen cover the agony and ecstasy of fandom while weaving in conversations about the impact of sports on society. That's the Heart of Sports, Fridays at 4 p.m. medalist and 2020 Olympic hopeful Matt Stutzman on the line. Matt, how you doing today? I'm doing amazing. How are you guys? I'm fantastic. Uh, how is uh, the Wait we- a second. You just told me you were no good. You're telling Matt that you're fantastic. Well, I'm, I like, I'm better now that I'm talking to him. See, I had, Matt before, I was just stuck in studio with you. Matt so. is such an inspirational story that he changed your mood instantaneously. Thank you, Matt. you got to be on the show every week. So, It'll Matt, be a much better show. <laughs> Matt, I literally have no excuse uh, for not getting anything done anymore. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm very impressed uh, at your ability. So let's talk. Let's work backwards. Let's talk a little bit about chasing your dream now for 2020 in the Olympics. How's that going and and how excited are you for this opportunity? Well, uh, I'm actually really excited about it. Um, In the 2016 games, I didn't do as planned, ended up. Uh, I think like sixth place, so that one stung a little bit. So sixth place in the world, basically. Well, I mean, when you put it that way, it sounds pretty cool. But right. uh, the competitor, <laughs> the competitor in me is like, oh, sixth place, you know. <laughs> uh, so I, I had to refocus a lot of what I was doing, um, and so uh, the training's going a lot better. I'm going to be in like better shape and just even mentally more prepared for it. So we'll cross my fingers. We'll see what happens. So you were not always an, an archer. This this was sort of a a family necessity thing for you that, that you started. Can you talk a little bit about how this all came about? And then we'll, we'll get into your life story a little bit more. Yeah. So probably about nine years ago or so, um, back when the economy was amazing and doing awful, 
uh, I couldn't find a job. And I literally had two boys that needed food. And so I remember seeing a guy on TV and he, he got a bow and went in the woods and he was hunting for food. And I was like, I could totally do that. Uh, so I, I went up and I got a bow with all intentions of trying to literally go in the woods and put food on the table. Um, little did I know it was going to turn out to be what it is now. So where was this? Because it obviously wasn't like in downtown Philadelphia that you we were going. He's out in with Iowa. He's an Iowa man. <laughs> yeah, Iowa, uh, which happens to be well. Right now it's fifty degrees out and amazing, but usually yeah. it's kind of cold. I don't understand that because I spent three years in Iowa. Uh, it was never fifty degrees in November when I was there. So <laughs> I don't. I don't know what's going on with that. Whether it's colder the gray, here. The gray skies went away when you left. Yeah. Absolutely, they were. They were excited <laughs> to have me gone. So you, you started shooting to, to try and provide for the family, realized that you were good at this, and started entering some competitions. When did you realize that this was a talent that you could really try and expand on and pursue? Uh, I would have been in 2012. I went to uh, what's called a Vegas shoot. It's basically one of the largest tournaments outside of the Olympics. Uh, it's actually the largest paying tournament in the world. Like I think this year, if you win this year in Vegas, it's like over $100,000. Um, which is amazing. Um, but I was, I went to one of those tournaments and I had literally only been shooting for like a year, year and a half. And, and by, I realized, by the way, you had, uh, you had given my, my favorite line when you started shooting. Uh, you said, I purchased my bow, did a Google search on how to teach an armless guy how to shoot a bow and nothing came up. <laughs> that, that was, that was amazing that, that, that was how you, you sort of, so now if somebody Googles that they'll find you and learn how to to be an archer and be, be good with that. So, so you go ahead and you're, you're now trying to make a living with this. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, Google is an amazing thing because you can literally Google how to fix anything now and it will tell you. But nine years ago, when you Google teach an armless man how to shoot a bow, you definitely didn't get an armless man shooting a bow. Um, <laughs> you know, so I basically had to kind of self teach myself how to do this based on watching somebody with hands shoot. Um, but yeah, so in 2012, I'm at this tournament and I realized after the tournament was over that I had beat guys who had been to the games before. And I was like, holy smokes, like I might be onto something here. So, uh, you know, Jason glossed past something, which was the part of what you Googled was how, how to teach an armless man how to shoot a bow. It's just a foot. Right. So, 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 you know, yeah. I saw, I saw you first saw your story on CBS Sunday morning uh, and was touched by it, which mm -hmm. is why I reached out to you. And, and so when you're on TV, obviously the visual is there for, for people that are not, uh, we don't have. Uh, we're not doing Facebook or anything right now, and you're you're far away from us right now. For people that that don't know your story, uh, you do not. You were born with no arms, and and so my question is 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 how did you overcome that? What what was it about your upbringing that that got you to the point of saying I could be in the Olympics as an athlete? I think a lot of it has to discredit of my parents because. Um, so first of all, I have seven brothers and sisters. So with me, that's eight children. And being a part of a big family, family like that, I was the only one with a physical disability. So you would think that my parents would have catered to me or they would have treated me differently because I had no arms. Um, but they didn't. They actually treated me just like the rest of my siblings. 
I had to do chores, feed cows, get eggs, <laughs> like all the stuff you do when you're on a farm. And if I didn't help out, then you just didn't get to eat. So at a very young age, they were already teaching me how to be kind of self-reliant and learn how to think outside the box to um, basically take care of myself, um, which says a lot because I'm a parent now and I'm always wanting to help my kids. So if you can imagine having a child without arms and you're wanting them to excel in life, knowing that eventually someday they're going to be on their own. Sometimes you got to let them kind of learn and fail and learn and fail until they finally get it on their own, which, which is incredible of them to let me do that. Yeah. And I have an, an older kid. Jason has a younger kid. And so you, you, when you, when you have kids, you don't want them to fail. And it's the hardest thing to step right. back and do that, but you also want to teach them lessons. And I, I went to mm-hmm. school in Michigan. Jason knows that because I talk about it every week. But All uh, the time. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I went to school. With Wait, a, does that mean you're a Michigan fan or yeah, Michigan State fan? No, no Michigan He's fan. a Michigan fan. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, and you're just south, you're just south of Iowa City, so <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. difficult for you. I know. I, I didn't mention that when I asked you to be on the show, obviously. Um, but, but I went to a school with, with a, a baseball player named Jim Abbott. And, and Jim oh, was okay. was born with without a hand and became a pitcher who threw a no hitter in the major leagues and, mm-hmm. and and I remember Jim saying um, he that he's learned that it's not the disability that defines you it's how you deal with the challenges the disability presents you with I've learned that we Absolutely. have an obligation to the abilities we do have not to the disability mm-hmm. can you relate to that Yeah absolutely so. Um, Jim and I actually, I've never met Jim, but him and I actually have something in common, just to throw this out there. Him and I, from what we can tell based on the research, are the only two people or the first two people in the United States to actually make an able body Team USA uh, team. I remember when he uh, was I believe he, USA. I believe he pitched at an Olympic yeah. uh what was it? It was like um, he made the able body Olympic team for uh, something. I don't remember exactly, but he, for baseball. Yeah. No, but I mean it was like, uh, yeah, that's what it was. And so, um, yeah, but I can absolutely relate because uh, most of my life, you know, people told me I wasn't going to be able to do anything. And there's no way you're going to be able to shoot a bow. But you just had to look past all that stuff and and basically just carry on with your life and what you were doing and make the best of the situation that you got because the reality is that it's not going to change. And, and you so a, all you can do is make it better. You had a friend who was, who was pretty honest with you. You were you know getting endorsements and having some success, but uh, a, a friend said to you, uh, the reason why they sponsor you is because you have no arms and you draw attention to their product, not because you're good. And that sort of made you decide to become even better. Can you talk about that and how that motivated you um, and what it was like when you when you first went into some of these tournaments that you're you're beating these able-bodied guys? How how did they handle that? So I remember specifically the the day that my friend told me that. Um, Is he still so your friend? Obviously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, we're still friends, but <laughs> we don't talk as you much. You talk as less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like. Uh, thank you, sir, for my success, but for pushing me. But you know those kind of those words kind of suck. But they, they, I mean, but they were true, right? And so you had to look at it as he was just being honest. And if he wasn't honest, then I probably, I mean, I still would be doing what I'm doing, but it probably wouldn't have sunk in like it did, because I wanted to be known as the the best archer in the world first 
followed by, oh, by the way, did you know he does it with no arms? I didn't want to be, look at the guy without arms and shoot the bow, you know? Um, and he kind of, by saying that, kind of made me realize that I just wanted to be the best first. And so um, he pushed me with that. Your, um, your Twitter handle is Armless Archer. You cool with that nickname? Is that something? <laughs> is that something you came up yeah. with, or would, yeah, yeah? Because Jeff and I weren't uh, sure whether so, we should use it, and I said, "Okay, I'll just ask him." <laughs> yeah, no, you can definitely use Armless Archer. In fact, when I was first starting uh, making the videos and stuff like that, and trying to self promote myself, I'm like, "What should I call myself?" And I came up with some pretty crazy names, but at the end of the day, arm I came up with Armless Archer just turned out to be the best because I had no arms. And at that time, I was the only one in the world with no arms shooting a bow. You say uh, it. So you it say it that. Sense. You say at that time. Ha, have other people now been inspired to try this sport as a result of what you've been able to accomplish? Yeah. So I went to um, the Czech Republic this year for one of our national shoots, um, and there was like another guy and a lady who showed up with no arms that entered the tournament. So this is that would have been the very first tournament ever that someone other than me without arms was there. So there was actually three armless people shooting. And so, um, which is amazing because that just is telling you that everybody else in the world is starting to see um, that you can do those cool things and not live in a little bubble and live life and have an amazing time with it. So they're starting to experiment, experiment with it too. I, I don't remember whether it was HBO Real Sports or, or one of the segments. There was a veteran who had lost a limb and and he was shooting now did i know you you just wanted to be the best archer but do you ever stop and think about what it's like to actually inspire other people to be able to uh, achieve some of the success you have um so when i first started it was definitely for the purpose of figuring out how to put food on the table um of course i wanted to win i didn't realize it was going to like i said turn into what it is now but now i see it completely differently um when you look at other professional sports guys uh, like Michael Phelps, um, yeah, they're they're amazing and they win a lot, but they don't win all the time. But what they've done for their sport is they have physically changed the sport for the better. That's why we consider Michael Phelps arguably one of the best swimmers in the world. Um, same way with Michael Jordan. When I was younger, I wanted to be Michael Jordan, even though I knew I wasn't going to be a basketball player. But I wanted to be him, right? And he literally changed the sport. So seeing that other people are getting into the sport because they've seen me shoot, whether they have a disability or not, uh, makes me feel really good. It means I'm, I'm changing the world. I'm making the sport better. Uh, I'm making people's lives better. Um, and, in fact, that's more rewarding than winning. The, the bow that you used, is that something that you developed yourself? I mean, there was, nobody, there was nobody for you to model yourself after. So how did you come up with the idea that you could shoot a bow? So, yeah, so one thing that my parents were really good at is teaching me how to adapt to things versus adapting the things to me. So, like, right now, if you were to go into my house, besides a picture on the wall, there's nothing that would lead you to believe that a guy without arms that lives there. Like, I have no modifications in my house. My cars are normal whatsoever. Uh, same way with the bow. So I was able to just go buy a bow off the shelf that was just a standard bow that a company made. And I just taught myself how to shoot it. And you mentioned the car. I saw the video of you driving your truck with your, <laughs> your right foot on the wheel and your, your left foot on yeah. the, the gas and the brake. Look, I, I drove mm -hmm. here today on the Schuylkill Expressway. There's plenty of people with two hands that can't drive well. 
Uh, Jason's how, one of them. How did no? I can't park. I can drive just <laughs> fine. I can't park. But how did you? How did you teach yourself to to do that? And what's the reaction you get from people um, when you do it? Because I I saw you talk about how the fact that people would stare at you at times actually prepared you for shooting because you're able to block out the noise and distractions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, to touch base on the driving thing, I. Um, I grew up on a farm, so I was driving trucks and tractors ever since I was like seven. Um, and I just had to once again learn how to drive with my feet. So that was kind of like a second nature thing. Uh, as far as the re- <laughs> the, the reaction, <laughs> the reactions when you get pulled over with driving with your feet. Well, first of all, that's that's amazing because I haven't had a ticket now uh, in a long time because when they pull you over, they're still kind of like startled <laughs> that some guy's driving with his le- with his legs uh i was also like a hands-free law so uh, if i put my phone on my shoulder i i'm waiting for them to pull me over just so i can argue the whole hands-free thing <laughs> now you're just looking to start trouble <laughs> uh, but even now, I mean, people look at me a lot when I was younger, uh, whether I'm driving or at a restaurant eating or just playing basketball with my kids, you know, people stare. Uh, and not that they're trying to be rude. It's just they're genuinely interested in how I do things. Um, and so at a very young age, I was able to very fast block that stuff out. Um, I didn't realize that it was teaching me a valuable lesson until later. So now let's say I'm at a tournament and I make it to the finals where – you know, there's thousands of people watching. It's just me and my one competitor. I'm able to block that out like second nature because I've been doing it since I can't, you know, can remember like seven, six years old. I was blocking people out where they've, you know, don't have a disability. They've never been in that situation before because no one stares at them on a regular basis. And so it actually becomes an advantage a little bit because I'm able to block people out uh, when I get to when it matters the most. So what ma- what's going to matter most is that in 2020, you're hoping to be in Japan, representing your country. That con- is rep- absolutely correct. Representing your country and and trying yeah. to get a medal instead of coming in sixth place, which, by the way, I'm pretty impressed. At. <laughs> I'll, I'll take sixth place in almost anything I do. But uh, um, what do you do? Is there anything special that you do for training? Is there something that you have to do for raising money to get to the Olympics? What is the preparation? 2020 is around the corner. Yeah, so um, the games are, you know, uh, it costs money to, to travel to tournaments, um, you know, equipment, that kind of stuff. So I, I do have sponsors who help um, with equipment and traveling and stuff like that. So that makes it a little easier on me. Um, but right now I'm basically just focused on um, one day at a time. So when I was in Rio, I think I weighed like 220 pounds or so. Uh, now I'm down to like 165 or something like that, and I'm I like I work out a lot, so I'm trying to keep um, my physical shape, uh, I guess, better than I was when I was in Rio because I t- I had a lot of hip issues um, with having being overweight, I guess. Um, and so now that I'm down to a good weight, I'm I'm shooting better, my confidence is better, and as you guys know, if your confidence is good at something, you perform better. So it's basically my goal to just kind of keep this going all the way into the into the trials that start in April. Well, like I said, I got no excuse not to get anything done now. 
Uh, I we can't thank you enough for the time. We wish you the best of luck at the trials and can't wait to follow you uh, on your next journey and uh, appreciate the time. I appreciate it a lot, guys. Thank you so much for having me. You guys have you have a great one. The three interviews we revisited today are just a sample of the conversations we had over the past 12 months with people around the sports world. This is our third year bringing you the hardest sports, and as we head into our four-year anniversary this coming June, this year we brought us to the Army-Navy game, to the Union in the playoffs, from minor league baseball in the Phillies farm system, to the G League Blue Coats for the Sixers, and the opening of their new home. Through all of our shows, including the hardest sports, the High Hopes Phillies minor league rundown and the regiment we brought you 112 interviews talking about the journey these athletes authors executives officials and more have traveled and the lessons they learned along the way and we made sure to have a few laughs all while raising awareness to everything from youth homelessness to eating disorders equal pay and mental health challenges we hope you enjoyed the ride this year because we know we did and we look forward to everything that's still to come going forward that's going to do it for us in 2019 thanks so much for joining us this week and this year. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in 2020 in style. Have a great one and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.